I don't think resilience is about just cracking on. Rather, I think resilience is more about looking after ourselves so that we can keep going. And looking after ourselves might also include resting when you need to rest, understanding when you need a break to recharge. And sort of I have a bit of a, a mantra which goes... The times when I think I don't have time to exercise are the times I need to exercise the most. Because for me, exercise is a big part of resilience, mental and and physical. So when I feel the pressure building, I'm stressed, there's loads going on. It's easy to let that that go and think, ah, just another hour at my desk instead of going to the gym. But I just fundamentally deep down know that that's the wrong answer. But it doesn't mean it's it's easy. It's not always still easy to prioritise going to the gym, going for a run, riding my bike or whatever. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening everybody. I'm Ben Morton and a very warm welcome to episode 92 of the show, which also just so happens to be the final episode in season five. I can't quite believe we've done that many episodes and we are rapidly heading towards the 100th episode of the show. When it started out as a COVID-19 lockdown project, when I suddenly had a little bit of spare time in the diary. But it's been so much fun, it's been so insightful, and I'm delighted that so many people are now listening to the show, getting value from it, and that it's helping them on their journey to become an even better leader. Now, today's episode, the final episode of the season, is slightly different in so much as the roles have been reversed. I'm not interviewing anybody in today's episode. Instead, it's a recording of me being interviewed by Warren Munson on his Evolve to Succeed podcast. And some of the stuff we are talking about is some of my experiences in Iraq in 2003 as a young leader in the army and asking two soldiers to do the unthinkable. We talk about that age-old question of whether or not leaders are born or made, and I share my take on that. We also look at authentic leadership. We're talking self-awareness. We're talking leading different generations and much, much more. So something slightly different. I really hope you enjoy it. And without any further ado, let's dive straight in, folks. Here we go. It's weird, isn't it, being on the other side. I've been obviously usually the host, but I've been the guest a couple of times and it always feels a little strange. Um, I'm sure with all of your background and your successful military and corporate career, we're going to talk about leadership, which is, you know, the your thing with Ben Morton leadership. But really, what I want to talk to you about to begin with is a little bit of your own leadership experiences, if that's okay. And start, really, I suppose, with the military side of things. And I understand that your own first tour of Iraq took place in 2003, aged just 23, when you had to ask what you've termed um, the unthinkable of two young soldiers. Um, now, you say that experience had a profound impact on your passion for leadership. So perhaps that, you know, we'll explore that and where that passion came from. But perhaps you could just elaborate on the situation you found yourself in, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Warren. And I'll, I guess I'll give you the slightly shorter version of that story. But if you cast your mind back to 2003 and the probably end of 2002 and the build up to that Iraq uh, conflict, we all 
fundamentally, truthfully believed that kind of Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi army, had weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological weapons, and we knew he had at some stage because he'd he'd used them. So that was the the context that we were we were operating in, and the sort of story you're referring to there was um, it was just. Um, a day after, I think, the con- the conflict had, had started and me and my regiment were just south of the um, Iraqi border waiting to, to cross the border. And a missile had landed to the north of our, our position. Smoke was spewing out of it. And all of the um, alarms and detectors that we had that would signify a chemical or biological attack had, had been activated. So we thought we'd been experienced to a chemical or biological attack and we'd masked up we're taking cover under underneath vehicles um, and then a period of time had passed and then from our regimental sort of command post um, a friend colleague of mine basically called me over and said okay Ben uh, we think it's all clear um, I need you to take two soldiers and go and complete the two-man sniff test now it seems archaic and I remember practicing mm. it kind of at Sandhurst and in training thinking this is a bit ridiculous surely no modern army is ever actually going to do this yet here I was being asked to go and do the two-man sniff test which is basically the final test you do before ordering all of your troops to take their their gas mask or we call it a respirator off and the Mm -hmm. premise is basically that you would um, ultimately I can still get goosebumps talking about this you would ultimately sacrifice two soldiers to save a regiment so i had to choose two soldiers ask them to sort of crawl out from under the truck where we'd taken cover walk with me a couple of hundred meters towards sort of the the blast site and and upwind Um, they stand facing each other i'm standing between them i basically asked them to take a massive breath of air still with their mask on to almost completely fill their lungs and then they pop two fingers under each side of the seal of their mask and just pull it away from their face ever so slightly. And they take a tiny final sniff of air. The mask goes back on. And then they stand watching each other, as I do, for signs of nerve agent poisoning or, or a um, biological biological weapon. Oh, God. So that was what I, in, in that moment, had to ask. And it was ask, really, rather than order, to two soldiers to do. Wow. And that's a baptism of fire isn't it and and i suppose the military is quite i mean yeah how you know how do you go through that process and two brave young soldiers step forward as you ask them i mean that's amazing but at that point you know you're a young leader aren't you this this is your first tour you know you've had all your training at sandhurst i mean how does that training at sandhurst because it's always renowned and talked about isn't it that leadership training military training from Sandhurst stand you up for life was there a moment at all where you thought you're ill prepared for what you were doing Um, that's a really good question I don't know if there was a moment when I felt I was ill prepared but I was always very conscious that leaving Sandhurst isn't the end of the journey like it's terribly cliche but it's just the the end of the beginning right you leave Sandhurst Mm. with your basic leadership training really to to be a be an officer and that's the wonderful thing about the military structure that whilst 
kind of I suddenly was this platoon commander leading 30 soldiers like it I never thought it was all on me because I had a, a sergeant who technically was my second in command I very much saw him as a, as an equal and tapped into all of his experience then I had three corporals who were all very experienced as well so I don't think I was Ill, Ill prepared but I was very acutely aware that kind of there was still a lot to lot to learn and what is so good about that Sandhurst training you know how did it change you as an individual? It's a funny one. So you, I don't, I can only speak for myself, right? But, and I think this is probably reflective of other people's experiences. You, I almost wish you could go back and do it again, because going back and doing it again, you'd appreciate just how valuable it was. Kind of when you're there, mm. sometimes you can forget to enjoy bits because it's just head down. You're trying to get through and part, pass, pass the course. Um, but it is pretty, pretty relentless. And I often think about like what can you take from the military and apply to the business world? Where can you draw draw parallels? And some parallels you can draw, and, and some you can't. Like the the advantage that the military has that their peacetime job is to prepare for for war and operations. Right? We don't have budgets. Well, we do have budgets, but we don't have kind of financial targets to to hit a certain mm-hmm. amount of profit to, to to make. So. We're in a very fortunate position where we can, it's expected of us, part of our job is to train and, and, and develop. Um, but no, like Sandhurst is um, all-encompassing. Um, if nothing else, it teaches you to be hugely hugely resilient, I, I think, because it's long and tiring. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about resilience later on, because I know it's a subject that you're really passionate about in terms of leadership, so we'll perhaps come back to that. And it and then what did you find you know we're going to talk about your corporate career in a minute but i'm really just intrigued to say you know you, you know that real world experience of being a leader versus what you came out and you're trained to do even within the military in that the years you then served mm. as a leader in the military how did that change your perspective on leadership i think probably the main thing warren that still sticks with me to this day and it, it's kind of part become my mission really and I share this with anybody and everybody I talk talk to about leadership and it kind of comes back to um your first question around the the two-man sniff test it it really impressed upon me this idea that to lead anyone is a great privilege and a great responsibility and one of the main reasons I I say that which very much came from my time in the military Every single person that we lead is the most important person in the world to somebody. It's someone's mm. husband, wife, mum, dad, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, w- whatever. And I mean, my first career in the military, kind of this was slightly different in that that responsibility included looking after kind of people's lives and trying to bring people back from, from Iraq, kind of, well, mm. bring them all back and bring them all back well. Um, but it's the same in the business world, right? Because how we act and behave as leaders doesn't just affect people when they're at work between nine to five it has an impact on what they're like when they go home and then that spills over and there's like a contagion effect onto onto their loved ones and like yes at times business is busy and stressful when we put pressure on people but we don't have any right as a leader to continually be sending people home like stressed out anxious unhappy heading towards depression or or whatever um so like that's the the main thing that kind of I took from the military and has stayed with me, just this responsibility to look after the people 
as well as delivering the numbers. I mean, sometimes in business we can focus more on the numbers and and, and less on on the people. And I think underpinning that really is just how important it is to invest in building the relationships and and getting to know people. Because that's one thing that um, I think... um, overtly through the syllabus at Sanders and also there's this constant subliminal message that um, we just had to get to know our soldiers really know our soldiers because that's what would make them follow us really when they knew that we knew them and cared cared about them potentially even even loved them then they would follow us mm. not because of the, the rank or title and I think that's I think that's true in in business as well that's really interesting there's two things that come there isn't it is um you know, followers, not leaders, you know, you, you know, good leaders create, you know, those that follow them, which is really interesting. And, you know, that main point really there about the human side of leadership, which I don't think is often taught or in business books isn't really kind of demonstrated, you know, you get the situational leadership kind of scenarios, you get books on, this is how I achieved, this is how I led, but it's very analytical at times. And it does lack that personal the passion and the human side and yeah I'm absolutely with you and if you can bring that human side and bring your personality to leadership and that caring side of what we all are as human beings you can achieve great great things with the people that you know or within your team can't you yeah I think there's a shift coming I think there are more people talking about kind of the human side of leadership and there's more books starting to be be written about it now I think in some ways uh COVID-19 has has accelerated that. I think many Mm. people suddenly um, needed and appreciated kind of the more empathetic side of leadership from from their organisations if if they got it and if they didn't I think they realised that it's important and I think that's what's causing some people to to vote with their feet now hopefully as the world starts to to stabilise a a little bit if if we are post-COVID. Yeah, we are post-pandemic, but you are right there. And I, but I think what it also enabled a lot of leaders to do, particularly the alpha male, alpha female style leaders, is to show themselves as humans because we were all in this unknown situation, weren't we? We were all, um, you know, communicating via a laptop and people started to share their fears yeah, and their concerns and they became more human. And I think yeah, if, if, as long as we can keep that going and keep that momentum going, I think, it, you know, it might... God forbid there's been a lot of bad things that come out of the pandemic, but maybe that's one of the better things. And I suppose one of the subjects I was going to talk to you about, and now we're on that subject around COVID and pandemic, is this shift towards hybrid and remote working. And what you think, you know, the adaptations are needed within leadership to, you know, still remain relevant and effective as a leader? Yeah, it's such a big topic, isn't it, Warren, really? It's Um, a huge one, actually. There's a lot of very, some very practical stuff there. Um, and there's some other elements that are much more, much more leadership focused. I think, like some of the stuff that stands out for for me, some of the areas perhaps where, as leaders, we can dial up our our attention. Um, I mean, one is we need to get better at listening. Like it's easy to not listen that well when we're doing a lot of things vir- virtually, right? And kind mm-hmm. of hand in hand with that is getting better at managing managing distractions. Um, I mean, kind of when we started this, I was very deliberately, I've got kind of multiple screens because I'm in the studio here, closing everything down because just knowing that my email is open or my phone is there is going to be a draw and I'm not going to be fully focused on you you and the com- conversation. 
Um, so I think kind of that yeah. that's one. I think there's a real difference between it's a subtle difference around making those that we lead or helping those that we lead to understand that we're checking in with them rather than checking up. And that can be around the subtleties of subtleties of language. Yeah. Yeah, Like, um, I think sort of checking up is, uh, Hey Warren, um, can you, can you give me an update on where you are with that report versus checking in is, Hey Warren, kind of, if you need any help on that, on that report, kind of, I'm, I'm here. I don't yeah. don't forget to to drop me a line or shout if you if you need anything. I mean that's that's quite key, especially when we're sort of working from home and we're not not seeing each other as as much. Definitely, yeah. Really interesting tip there, yeah, absolutely. And I, so post military, you go you went into sort of corporate life. Um, you know, I suppose the first question on that: How did you find that transition from being you know a military leader to working within? You know, the corporates such as Tui and Tesco and others. It was a it was a very soft landing for me, if if, if I'm honest. I, I would love to sit here and say, "Oh God, it was really hard. I, I, I really struggled. <laughs> it was tough." Um, but 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 it really wasn't. Like I had a relatively uh, short short military career, so I served five years after Sandhurst um, through through my wife, who was my girlfriend and then fiance at, at the time. Like I'd already always had um, a circle of friends outside of the. The, the military so it wasn't that hard in that respect and then sort of um the first company that i joined there's a lot of sort of well not a lot there's a handful of ex-military people working there and as well as that so sort of my job was to recruit and train um sort of outdoor instructors expedition leaders who were similar sort of characters to to the military so it was it was a very very soft soft landing brilliant that's good to hear because you obviously sometimes hear those examples where that's not the case. So, yeah, great to hear. And I suppose in that kind of corporate world, maybe just referring back to your military world as well, is, you know, what are some of the better examples of leadership that you've witnessed, Ben? Um, yeah, I was reflecting on this on this recently and I did an episode of my own podcast. Someone asked me kind of some of the best leaders you've you've seen. Um, like one that springs to mind was my was my first um boss post post army and i think what he did what Nigel did very well was he was incredibly incredibly driven he had a clear vision he had high standards and he kind of pushed people but at the same time again he was very human and he would Mm. come out of his office he would and could engage with with anybody and the, the hr profession might might not like what i'm about to say but kind of i'm part of the hr profession and kind of chartered member of the uh, C- CIPD but Nigel was quite good at being able to sort of navigate some of the HR process and what I mean by that is like a lot of the time a lot of HR process particularly around um, performance management or redundancy can be quite un- unhuman and I mm. totally understand why a lot of that that process is there it's to pr- protect both people but it can be a really unhuman inhumane process to go through but yeah. Nigel could comes clinical yeah it? Yeah. It, it does it does and you almost like have this unwritten code where you both want to say something but you both know you can't and you're setting up a meeting and you know what it's about but you can't tell people exactly what it's about um, and Nigel would just navigate that in a very very hum- human way and he knew at certain situations when he could step in and not circumvent the process but just 
deal with things in a, in a different way that was better for the individual and better for the for, for the business and that's that's always kind of stuck with me really it's interesting isn't it because i always think about and i'll ask you one of some of your worst or the worst or some worst examples that you've seen but that kind of being human being able to build rapport with the team that you know works with you is really important isn't it? i refer back to my, my corporate days and we had an individual that used to lead and the office I was in at the time, and it was just painful because that skill, unfortunately, wasn't there. So it became the opposite. You know, at two o'clock every day, he'd get back from lunch, quarter past two, he'd just walk the floor, and he he was clear he was uncomfortable doing it. Yeah. But somebody had told him that's what you need to do to be a leader, and you just thought, you know, and I think there's this thing there, isn't there, about being genuine. As a leader, you need to be true to yourself. For sure. And, you know, he was great in other ways, absolutely, but... You can't just do what everybody expects you to do. You've got to find your own way through. Would you agree with that? Yeah, one hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. So I'm going to come on to ask. I've asked some, for a good example. So what's one of the worst examples you've witnessed, Ben, in leadership? Uh, one of the worst, which was well, there's a few actually, which I, I suppose we we all have. Um, yep. One that first sprung sprung to mind is. When I was working at Tesco, there was a guy who was on his sort of promotional course that would take him to the next next work level to be a, a director level within the business, I think. Um, and part of part of that course, he had to, with a team, deliver a real a real business project that would deliver tangible business results. In order to do that, he needed some some help from me. I was working in the learning and development team at the time. Like I didn't know this guy from from Adam. He found my email on the internal directory sent me an email said can I come and talk to you um and at the time Tesco had an influencing model called taking people with you it was like based around a, a baseball pitch pyramid and there was a series of steps the more cynical people started to call dragging people behind you um <laughs> but anyway this guy had agreed to to come and see me at my desk he walked up to me he saw a picture of my daughter on my desk who was like six months old at the time and said oh is that your daughter how old is she and before I'd even answered, fully answered the question, he'd moved on to the next question, which was the next step in this in this model. So he was very much doing leadership by tools and models. He was taking me through a process, and yeah, it kind of it it, it felt um, wow. it felt like manipulation actually. And that was a big yeah. driver for me. Right. That was the the start of my journey to to leave and and do what do what I do now because. Yeah. For me, leadership is more to, to your previous point. It's about who you are, what you stand for, understanding some of the sort of foundational principles of what it means to be a leader rather than doing leadership, which is he was very much do, doing leadership and it and it, it felt that way. It felt like being yeah. done to. Yeah. Well, and again, we've both got those examples then, haven't we? It's, yeah, it's, that, it's ungenuine. It doesn't feel right. And I think you've got to find your style and... Um, but I suppose there is some great books out there on leadership, isn't there? I mean, there must be some that have influenced you and some of your thoughts and some of the ways in which you approach the clients that you work with. So have you got any, you know, for our listeners, any good examples of some books out there that you think oh, are relevant on leadership, Ben? There's, there's loads, Warren. I'm like a massive, massive reader. I just consume books. Probably a few that stand out. Um Actually, it's the only book I've read cover to cover multiple times. Is it's an old one now, but it's Clive Woodward, the England rugby coach's first book, yeah. w- winning. Because uh, I've always yeah. loved the, as I say, the comparison between 
the military and business sport and, and business so that's just a, a fantastic book um so that's up there in the top of the list the one that i talk about all the time is the leadership challenge by jim coozes and, and barry posner is absolutely incredible um and then on a it's not directly a leadership book but victor frankl's book man's search for for, for meaning is is pretty it's not it's okay, not not, not an one. easy read okay. but it's a uh, pr- pretty um yeah, it's an exceptional book. Fantastic. Probably quite profound by the name yeah. of the cover. And of course, there's your own book, Ben. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right, writing that kind of had a, had an impact, yeah. <laughs> so I said we'd come back to the subject, but let's come back to that subject of resilience because um, that's kind of a core topic I've seen, you know, crop up time and time again within some of your content and within the podcast. So first off, you know, how would you define resilience? Um. Let me start, I guess, by saying what I what I think resilience isn't. So I don't think resilience is about just cracking on, just getting your head down, like it's yeah. just about grit and and keeping going. Rather, I think resilience is more about um, looking after ourselves so that we can keep going. And looking after ourselves might also include resting when you need to, to rest, understanding when you need a break to, to, to re, recharge. Um, so it very much is about looking after ourselves so we, so we can, can crack on. And sort of I have a bit of a, a mantra which goes, um, the times when I think I don't have time to exercise are the times I need to exercise the most. Because for me, yeah. exercise is a big part of resilience, mental and, and physical. So when I feel the pressure building, I'm stressed, there's loads going on. It, it's easy to let that, let that go and think, ah, oh, just another hour at my desk instead of going to the gym. But I just fundamentally deep down know that it, that's the wrong answer, but it doesn't mean it's, yeah. it's easy. It's not always still easy to prioritize going to the gym, going for a run, riding my bike or whatever. And how do you think people can enhance their resilience then? Or do you think there's an innate ability in all of us that we have this, ability to cope at capacity but i mean from the previous answer i think you would say you can enhance it so how do you think people can enhance their resilience um that's a really good good question we could spend the the rest of the podcast talking about that i guess couldn't we um there's a let me answer it this way that i um about 18 months ago i did a mental health first aid um, mental health first aid of course through mental health first aid england and in their their workbook they've got this really nice model what they call the the stress container so imagine like a container or a water butt where kind of stress flows into the top there's a tap at the bottom and if the tap is open and working that represents our, our coping strategies so it lets stress stress flow out sometimes helpful coping strategies if we do them too much can become unhelpful so a glass of red each night might be a helpful coping strategy if that turns into a bottle of night probably tips into being unhelpful <laughs> yeah. um, and then if that tap is closed if we don't have any coping strategies then our container will start to overflow and that sort of leads to emotional snapping or potentially some sort of mental health uh, condition or, or, or disorder the reason i thought to to describe that right now is each of us has got a slightly different size container mm. One of the most unhelpful things I heard in the height of the COVID pandemic was, oh, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? Like, we, we fundamentally weren't. Like, if you was a single parent in a small inner city flat living on the 45th floor, 
that's very different to someone who is um, financially kind of well off, living in a mm. big house, kind of maybe kids at private school and not having to worry about homeschooling. Like we weren't in the same boat at all. Some people were in very not very nice super yachts. Others were clinging on to driftwood. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we've all got a different size container, and part of what dictates the size of our our stress container and maybe how resilient we are, how we respond to stress and pressure is sort of some of our childhood experiences. So if we had mm. um, particularly traumatic experiences a, as a child, that might mean we're more susceptible to, to stress in the future. And equally, if we were never exposed to challenging situations younger in our life, and if we never um, stumbled and then was able to, to overcome some fears or challenges, then, then that's not going to be helpful late, later in life. So from that, we can think, well, as a, as a parent, it's important to put, this is certainly my approach, it's important to expose my daughter to some challenging, slightly stressful situations in a controlled environment so she learns to overcome those. And the mm. same in, in business, right? If we, as a leader, if we overprotect our, our people, if we do too much for them, if we don't let go of tasks, if we don't give them those stretch and assignments, they're, they're never going to grow and develop and become become more more resilient. So we that's just like one small way of, of doing it, but we absolutely can improve our improve our, our resilience. It's it's interesting, isn't it, what you say there? Because one of the um one of those kind of principles of leadership that really hit home for me a number of years ago now, but I'd been sort of leading and growing inspire um at the time was this concept of, you know, as a leader you need to be high support, high challenge. Which is, you know, in principle what you're describing there in terms of, you know, people's ability to adapt to, you know, and be more resilient and and their their cup. But yeah, but that that whole principle of having to, you know, you you need to be high support, high challenge. And I think for so many years I was high support, low challenge. Yeah. And just when that mind shift clicked, you think, okay. And and part of being high challenge is dedicating more and letting go a little bit. And, you know, and I think, yeah, leadership for me is about that piece around self-awareness and, self and growth and having a growth mindset. Yeah. So that you're changing, you're developing, you're, and your people can see that that's happening. And, you know, you're not just going through the motions. But, I mean, where's your feeling around self-awareness and, you know, how self-aware do you think you need to be as a leader oh, these are su such good questions warren like um <laughs> I, 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 we're gonna have you back as another guest <laughs> to go into some of these subjects in more detail but um i think self-awareness is um again sounds terribly cliched but i think it's a it's a journey rather than a destination right like i, I just yeah. fundamentally do not believe like we can do a load of development. We arrive on on one day, a moment in time, and go, ah, now I've, I've got it. I've cracked it. I'm self-aware. I, I totally understand myself because there's just always more to more to learn yeah. learn about ourselves, right? Um, I do absolutely think that the more self-aware we are, the more effective we can become as a, as a leader because yeah. quite simply we start to – understand more of the impact that we have on on people around us right because we're always yeah, no. we're always having a, a an impact whether we realize it or not whether it's intentional or unintentional we are always impacting those around us and many people kind of wiser more experienced than me will talk about the the light and the shadow that we that we cast as a as a, as a leader so the more we understand that 
the more we can focus on Definitely. casting a, a positive light rather than a, a, a dark shadow that, that gets in the way of people and stops them performing at, at their best, I think. But it's it's really difficult being a leader at times, isn't it? I mean, it's not the easy thing all the time, is it? You know, when things are going well, um, you know, it can be joyful, but, you know, when, when things are stressful and challenged, then that's the point at which sometimes the joy goes out of it. Or when you've probably got a personal challenge going on and how you show up in those moments. And I suppose that does come back to self-awareness again, doesn't it, Ben, is that you've got to be aware that things do affect you and and, and the joy you see in leadership and leading a team will ebb and flow. Yeah. But, how, but I suppose in that way, have you, coach, seen some great examples or anything you'd talk about how you become consistent? Because that's always... That's, sometimes a challenge isn't it with everything going on how do you actually be a consistent leader yeah and it i guess it slightly depends what we mean by by consistency as well so this is quite a big insight for, for for me recently um like i've always understood and kind of believed situational leadership but a lot of the time people we talk about leadership styles right and i was really fortunate on on my show a while back i interviewed general david petraeus who kind of led the surge in iraq former head of the of the cia um and i'd not spoke to him before the before the show in person just on email and he said look happy to come on what watch these videos i've done before draft some questions in there and one of the questions he was essentially asking me to ask him was around leadership styles and he said when people ask me what my leadership style is my answer is always tell me what you want me to achieve tell me the context tell me who I'm leading and then I'll tell you my leadership style i.e like mm. highly highly situational and that got me to think about okay so what about consistency because because that's really really important right mm. but where I think consistency come comes from is going back to I guess guiding principles of leadership and as an individual being really clear on um what are my core values? Like, what are the things that are most important for me for me in life? What do I truly stand for? And again, I know it's become quite uh, popular over the last 10 years, mostly thanks to Simon Sinek. But actually, I do think it's important. Like, what's, what's my purpose? What drives me? Why do I get out of bed in the morning? And if we're clear on those things for ourselves, it, it starts to make us consistent because in those moments when we're operating in the gray where we've got big difficult decisions to make where arguably there is no right or wrong what what do we do well we can fall back on our values and use them mm. to help us make those decisions and if we do that then we'll be consistent and even if we're making calls that those in our team might not like or might make their lives difficult at least they understand our thinking process and rationale behind it so that's how we can we can start to become much more more consistent i think absolutely that you know resounds with me and i I, can, I get all of that but there's also this situation isn't there maybe it's the old school style of leadership where somebody's personal business values conflict with each other at times and i think modern leadership or you know again it's about being human and that that's disappearing but there must be times when you've seen that situation where you know somebody turns up with a game face on and a set of values as they turn up for work or in the military, be how they would behave personally. And how would you coach somebody to, you know, if somebody's listening and thinking, well, that's 
possibly me and possibly stopping my consistency. How would you coach somebody through that? Yeah, well, let, 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 let me ask ask you a question. Do you have kids, Warren? I do, yeah, two girls. How, how old are your girls, if you don't mind saying on? 13 and 17. Cool. Uh, so I'm assuming family is probably kind of quite important to you, maybe as a, as a value. Absolutely. Cool. Of course, yeah, definitely. Do, do your two girls stop? Did your two girls stop being important to you at nine o'clock this morning when you joined this call with me? No, of course not. One of them's off to a, uh, their first kind of festival up in Kendall this weekend, and I'm like petrified of <laughs> leaving. So no, yeah. actually, it's in the forefront of my mind. Then. Yeah, and and that, that's that's my point with this. And I get asked this question probably in every uh, leadership program where I talk about values and get people to start start developing their values. Someone will go, "I've got a question, Ben. Before we go to the breakout, are we talking about work or home here?" And my answer tends to be along the lines of what, what I just shared with you. Like, yeah. it, it it's both, right? I Other people might have a have a different view. Um, I don't believe we have two completely different sets of values, like one stuff at home that's important and other stuff at work. I I think we've got a, a mix of values. Um, I often talk about sort of how our values change over life. And sometimes I think we have like a like a primary set of values of maybe five or six things that are imp- really important to us. And there might be another four that are our secondary values that, that are less important. And the best way I can describe this is if you'd asked me 11 years ago what my core values are, as much as I love my mum and dad dearly, I wouldn't have said family was one of my core, core values back then. Mm. If you asked me today or 10 years ago, I've got a 10 year old daughter, I would absolutely have said family is important. So I don't think for me, family suddenly appeared in my values list. It just massively moved up the, up the, up, up the priority order. So like, I think, I mean, we've got this one set. They don't stop being important when we transition from work to home or or home to work. And stuff is always going to be, going to be impacting on us. If, if we've got kids and family is really important, and it's uh, sports day at school or our son and daughter is in a in a play like we're gonna want to leave work early to go and do that so if people understand at work family's important again they start to understand our our actions so yeah values are, are, are so important I don't think they're, they're they're separate and I think when we try to um, overly regulate our our values and kind of hide part of us at work actually that that just doesn't work from a neuroscience perspective yeah. because if we're trying to regulate our emotions and be somebody we're not that's using up a huge amount of cognitive brain power which means we've got less brain power to actually do the job we're paid to do do at work so we're better to be fully authentic step into who we truly are and and lead in our own own way rather than trying to be somebody or something that that we're not brilliant Great answer. I'm going to end with some quick fire questions. Um, let's start. Where should we go first? Okay, let's go with what hard thing in life are you not doing enough of right now? Oh, wow. Um, what hard thing am I not doing enough of? Um, there's a difficult conversation outside of work that I, I need to have that I've been putting off for a couple of years, so... Yeah, I wasn't expecting to say that out loud on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a a difficult conversation I need to have. Okay. And then 
how has I suppose you know you've gone through that transition from military to corporate to being entrepreneurial, setting up you know Ben Morton leadership and the successes you've had there. So how has being entrepreneurial affected your personal life? Wow, these are quick fire ones. <laughs> oh, they were going to be quick fire. We can go into more depth if you like. Ben. Um, God, I don't even know uh, know where to where to start with that. Um, how has running my own business affected my my personal life? Yeah. Um, God, it's completely completely got me stumped. It, it has affected it in sort of in, infinite ways, really. Um, but yeah, I kind of wouldn't know where to where to start with with, with one. It's probably dialed up my um, dialed up my focus on sort of. Uh, energy management and looking after myself I, I i think for one like it's if you're not careful it can be all all consuming mm. kind of running running your your business um and i think the other one it um it's probably but even more focus on on authenticity i i think um because through the work that i do the people i co- coach the training programs i run and more and more um i guess living a fair bit of my life sort of publicly on on social media i'm very conscious of making sure that i'm sort of walk, walking my own walking yeah. my own own talk so to speak so i just hate for anybody to to turn around and say hey ben you kind of say this but i've seen kind of you you, yeah, you call you out on it and you kind of yeah being authentic yeah, yeah. and i think okay. kind of I, I i do that naturally but it just um i don't know maybe it puts a little bit more jeopardy on it <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And obviously, uh, you know, I'm a keen cyclist myself, done sort of some cycle tours through, through from Paul all the way down through to Rome, done a few of the big amateur things like the Marmot and uh, the Tour de Stations. But you've actually cycled the Tour de France route one year, didn't you? Yeah, 2019. What was that it's... like as an experience there? Um, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, came at uh, probably just the right time for me. I did it for my the year I was I was 40. Um but it was amazing to be able to completely detach yourself from your your business, your work, and the rest of of life really for three and a half weeks because you're just in this bubble of cycling every day, pretty much everything being being done done for you. And, and I must say, I'm incredibly grateful to my wife for allowing me the opportunity to to, 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 <laughs> to, 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 to go and do it. Um, but yeah, it was incredible in terms of just space to recharge, stop, yeah. think, re- reflect. I find that you know the longest I've done is five, six days in a kind of on a row, and but you do by day two, day you're just in this rhythm, and yeah. that clarity of mind comes, and yeah, feel honoured and privileged to be able to, to be able to go and do that, as you say, and you know have the support of the family to go and do that. But it does give you clarity, doesn't it? Right. So we are going to end with one big question, um, and that. Is the question I always end with, Ben, which is, what does success mean for you? Success for me is um, about balance, I think. Um, but probably ultimately, success for me is if I can leave some sort of uh, legacy for my daughter, I, I, I think. And by legacy, kind of, I mean... Um, really just leaving a good example setting her her up for 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 success in in life as well like yes i want the the business to do well 
don't particularly have financial targets but kind of if I'm just flogging myself at, at work to kind of hit a number or get so many so many followers but kind of I'm miserable and don't have time to be there for my wife and daughter and family along the way then then that's not not success really so um success I guess uh, I'd say happy healthy high performance sounds balanced to me that's a brilliant answer Ben if people want to learn more about you want to follow you learn more about Ben Morton leadership where can they go uh, best place to go is just head to the website and from there you can find all the various links which is um, simply ben-morton.com perfect thank you Ben you've been a great guest on the Evolved Succeed podcast thank you for having me it's been uh, been a great conversation thank you so folks as they say in the movie industry that is a wrap on season five and incidentally i only learned this a few years ago they say it's a wrap because wrap is an abbreviation which stands for wind reel and print don't know if you knew that anyway i hope you enjoyed that slightly different episode And at this point, I just want to say thank you to you for listening and being a fan of the show. And I want to say a big thank you and shout out to my team. Big thank you to Fina, my amazing editor, for all the work that she does, which is sometimes a little bit short notice and up to the wire. Big thank you to Amanda, my amazing personal assistant or chief admin officer, as I like to refer to her, who helps with the organisation, the scheduling and some of the social media and promotion of the show. And a big thank you to Susie as well, my community manager, and for all of her help promoting and sharing the podcast out. It really is a team effort and I'm blessed to have an amazing team around me. So a big, big thank you, guys. I couldn't do it without you. And then a final request, folks, before you go. I say this all the time, but as we get to the end of season five and I start thinking ahead to season six, it would be amazing if you could take just a couple of minutes right now to rate and review the show wherever you happen to listen. It really does make a difference. It enables us to to attract more and more guests and it really does enable us to keep bringing you more and more episodes of the show. Hope you're enjoying the show. Hope I'm being of service to you. I'm going to take a break for a few weeks and we'll be back ready and energized and looking forward to season six. But for now, Take care, and as always, folks, lead on. Quick one before you go. To support International Youth Day on the 12th of August, my team and I have created a brand new online Emerging Leaders programme specifically for the under-25s. Why? Well, because by the time I was 25 years old, I was fortunate to have had some of the very best leadership training that the world offers. And I'd also led soldiers on two operational deployments to Iraq. So, in order to pay it back, to pay it forward and bring my mission to life, I'm offering this programme at a heavily discounted rate between the 8th and 19th of August 2022. For an investment of between $9.99 and $19.99, dependent on the number of licenses, you can set your under-25s on the path to leadership success in the future and increase their personal effectiveness today. 
You can find out more via the link in the show notes and then contact me directly via chat at ben-morton.com to enroll your team in the programme.